starting our series on Romans, as Don mentioned earlier this morning. So I'd like for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, When I was a kid, I loved to take things apart. Puzzles, models, motors, whatever. I I loved to take them apart. Uh, I I couldn't always um, equally put them back together. Uh, and at times I'd be taking things apart and, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't budge. It wouldn't quite work. So I always grabbed the proper tool, a hammer, and, and I completed the process of dismantling things. And, and then I would bring these pieces to my dad. And, you know, it was amazing because I, I cannot recall a time when my dad couldn't put something back together that I had torn apart. Happened over and over and over again. Well, now I'm the dad. And periodically, my kids will bring me a pile of pieces, or maybe in a bag, maybe just laying on the kitchen table, and their expectation is always that I can put it back together. And so I have a great supply of of glue and tape and screws and nails, and I do my best, but there are times when I simply cannot put the pieces back together. And it's amazing when I watch their faces, it is, it's almost like their world got turned upside down. Because the father's role is to put the pieces back together. There's this uh, expectation within our children that we are uh, omnipotent and omniscient. And no matter how destroyed things are, dads will somehow be able to put all the pieces back together. As Christians, sometimes we bring our broken lives to the Lord. And we're hopeful and we're expectant. God, can you put this back together? Can you fix the, bro- the broken pieces somehow? Or sometimes we look not at our own lives, but we look at our, our friends' lives, we look at what's going on in the world, these huge, enormous issues of brokenness in our world. We see famine, and we see disease, and we see hurricanes, and we see wars, and we say, God, can you? Are you able to fix things? Can you set things right? God, are you willing to set things right? And if you're able, and if you're willing, then what are you waiting for? When the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, the world was broken. The world was very broken. In fact, unrighteousness was reigning in the world. The Roman Empire was in charge. And everywhere Paul looked, things were broken. And people were suffering, especially God's people. God's people were suffering a lot. And into that historical setting and into that culture, the Apostle Paul proclaimed, God has intervened and God is fixing things. And most of the people that heard Paul deliver that message looked at Paul and they said, are you absolutely crazy, Paul? Are you completely out of touch with what's going on in the world? The Jews who heard Paul's message said, so Paul, God has intervened with a crucified Messiah Paul, maybe you've forgotten your theology. Messiah wins. Messiah doesn't die. And the non-Jewish people who heard Paul's preaching, they said, a man rose from the dead, Paul? No, men don't rise from the dead. No one's ever risen from the dead. Your king died and rose from the dead? I don't think so. That's a really interesting but naive idea. And this king who rose from the dead, he's a Jew? Paul, ever heard of Caesar? The world is broken and Paul, the message that you are proclaiming isn't close to fixing it. And Paul says to those people, I am not ashamed. 
I am not ashamed of this good news that I'm proclaiming to you that God is putting all things right. I want you to read with me in Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Paul says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous person shall live by faith. These two verses in 16 and 17, I believe, are the thesis of the entire book of Romans. I believe they are actually the central theology of all of Paul's understanding of the entire course of biblical revelation. It is synthesized in verses 16 and 17. And Paul is going to say, I am unashamed of this gospel, this good news. And he's going to give us three reasons why. First, Paul is unashamed of the gospel because, simply put, it is the saving power of God. It is the saving power of the one true God. Now, when I think of uh, power in the Old Testament... I think of things that are big and dramatic. I think of uh, obvious and overwhelming displays of power. I think of God confronting Pharaoh and performing miracle after miracle after miracle through Moses and putting the greatest ruler of the earth to shame. I think of Moses standing at the Red Sea and lifting his arms and the very power of God parts the Red Sea puts up barriers, walls of water on either side and the Jewish people, two million of them, walk across a sea On dry land. I think of them facing the city of Jericho and walking around the city and then just yelling, and God knocks all of the walls down. I think of Moses on Mount Sinai and and fire and smoke and thunder and it's shaking. That's what I think of when I think of of power in the Old Testament. You know, this last year, uh, my wife and I took our kids for the first time to an IMAX theater, and uh, it was an interesting experience because. Uh, even as we were walking into the theater, the kids started getting nervous because you walk in and the screen is huge. You know, it covers the whole ceiling and the uh, auditorium is on an angle like this. And so they were gripping the rails as they were walking up, you know, holding onto us real tight, holding onto the railings, getting into their seats and then sliding way back like this, you know, holding on to the, the, the seat posts here. And, and they're looking up and the film starts and they do a little introduction. If you've ever been in IMAX, you know, they do an introduction. They show you what the theater is about, and so the lights begin to flash so you can see where the theater stretches, and then they put lights on from behind the screen so you can see each speaker, and they max out the speaker so you can feel the power, and it's boom, 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 and our kids are just kind of getting white, and they're watching all this and you know, getting really nervous and moving back, and they don't want to fall out, and they don't want to get hit by the power, and it's, they're really nervous, and we go through this, this whole movie IMAX experience, um, on sharks. <laughs> Maybe bad parenting one on one, whatever, but sharks, you know, whoa. And uh, they get up at the, the end of the show and they, they turn to me and my wife and they said, Can we do that again? Okay, it was it was spooky, it was enormous, it was bigger than anything they'd ever seen or heard but they wanted more of it. That was the Jews' reaction every time they confronted the power of God. They went, whoa, that's what we need. We need 
the very power of God moving in our lives. That's what we long for. That's what we need. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, this gospel is that power. It is the power of the one true God for salvation. For salvation. Now, when you hear the word salvation, what do you think? Read one author this week, N.T. Wright, he said this, when we think of salvation, normally, normally we think of it as the state of post-mortem bliss enjoyed by the redeemed in a more or less disembodied heaven. Not very gripping. We think of, get out of hell, get your wings and sit on a cloud. Right? It's just this kind of generalistic, vague thing that it's not really that exciting, but I don't want the alternative, so I'll take that. That's salvation. Well, that's very contrary to the concept of salvation through the Bible. Salvation means, very simply, rescue, deliverance. Rescue or deliverance from what? Well, it could be a variety of things. It could be rescue and deliverance from sickness and death or from enemies or from sin. I want you to turn with me. Keep your place here in Romans and turn back with me to Psalm chapter 31 and verse 1. Psalm 31, verse 1. David writes, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. You hear the themes of Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17 echoed there? Let me never be ashamed. Shame in the Old Testament was what God's people felt when it looked like God was defeated. God's losing, and so we're losing. David writes, don't let me be ashamed. God, show your power or your righteousness in my life. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your loyal love. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. And so salvation in the Old Testament was this very broad, comprehensive topic. It was God's people being delivered from all that was bad and being rescued into all that is good. So when Paul begins to write about salvation, what is he thinking? Remember, uh, Paul wrote in Greek, but he was thoroughly Jewish in Old Testament in his theology. What was he thinking? Well, Paul used the word salvation in a variety of ways. He talked about being rescued in the past from the penalty of sin. That wage or penalty of sin is death, it's separation from God, In his theology, the moment that you believe, you are rescued from that penalty. That's past tense. You have been saved. But Paul also used salvation in the present tense. You are being saved right now from the power of sin in your life. That is largely the topic of Romans 6 through 8. God is saving you. God is transforming you. He's rescuing you from slavery to sin into the freedom of righteousness. 
Paul also talks about future salvation. He mentions it in Romans 5 and in Romans 8 and then also in Romans 9 through 11. That is, we will be saved. When God judges, we will be rescued and we will be delivered into his very presence. That's glorification. It's not with sitting with wings on a cloud with nothing to do. It is the very presence of God. It's the most electrifying experience that we could actually ever experience. It's the fulfillment of all we were designed to be. That's salvation future. Then sometimes when Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about that whole package. Okay, everything. Or in other words, God putting everything back in place. He refers to this in Romans chapter 8, in verse 19. Romans eight nineteen, Paul says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is uh, the pinnacle of God's salvation, where individuals are rescued from the penalty and the power of sin, and they become glorified, and God intervenes into all of human history, and he saves not individuals, but he reconciles individuals to one another. He reconciles them to himself. He even fixes all of creation. He recreates so that there's no more conflict or alienation between man and creation. There are no more hurricanes and earthquakes and natural disasters. There is no more famine because the earth yields its produce. There is no more shortage. Our relationships are fixed. Our physical lives are fixed Our relationship with God is fixed. Everything is set right. That is the broadest and most comprehensive term, which is salvation. It is God setting all things right. God setting all things right. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the one message that will put all things right. Social justice has become a hot topic again among Christians, and I'm very glad that it has. Christians being concerned with the problems in the world, in our community, shortages and poverty and lack of education, problems throughout the world, slave trading, famines, wars. Christians should be deeply concerned for those things, but we should never act on those things without also bringing the gospel Because food without the gospel is short-sighted. It is only the gospel message which ultimately will set all things right. And so as Christians, we should not be ashamed when we enter into the community, when we enter into problems in the larger world, and we bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Paul says that's the only thing that's going to fix all of the world. It is fixing it now, slowly, but certainly, and it ultimately will fix all things through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. Second, I'm unashamed of the gospel because it saves everyone who believes. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says the gospel saves everyone without exception. It does not matter how broken a person's life is. It does not matter how 
deeply they have sinned or the crimes they have committed, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. What we saw operating in fire and smoke on Mount Sinai or parting the Red Sea or even further back in the act of creation is the same power that can recreate life in any life that has been broken without exception. It's not dependent upon race or status or gender or age or anything. Every life can be fixed by the gospel. There is just one condition, and that is that you believe. God has displayed his power in Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead, that is, giving him life when he was dead. And he said, for that life and that power to be yours and that process of restoration to begin, all that you have to do is believe. We will spend a lot of time talking about what does it mean simply to believe. We hit Romans chapter 4. Let me put it in the simplest terms this morning. From John chapter 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. To believe is simply to receive. To say, God, I now understand that the death of Christ, that was for me. That was a death that paid the penalty for my sins so that I could have life. I received that gift, I believe. And the moment that you believe, you have life. Without exception, it applies to every single person sitting here equally. Second, without distinction. Again, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. There's not a version 4 that has more features for... (laughs) Those who are rich and you got to settle for version three with limited features if you're poor or if you're one race or another race, it is without distinction for all people. So why then did Paul say to the Jew first and then to the Greek or to the Gentile? Well, you got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and then turn back one chapter further to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis 11, the world is broken and people are getting worse and worse and worse. And they're all banding together. And they're in rebellion against God. They build a tower up to the sky so that they can never be flooded out again. They don't trust God that he won't destroy them again with the flood. And they want to make a name for themselves. They come together rather than spreading out. And they don't spread out and take God's name. They come together and make a name for themselves. It's all about them. God looks down and he says... Their wickedness will increase so greatly, now I must intervene and scatter them. And he scatters them and he creates languages from which come races, from which comes racism. And God looks at all of these peoples and he says, I'm going to select one man and one family. And through that one, I'm going to bring my salvation to all people. Salvation will not be for the Jews only. It will be from the Jews for all people. And so the solution to disharmony among people, interpersonal conflicts all the way to world wars, the solution is Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that completely levels all of us. We are all level at the cross. We all come on our knees with nothing to bring. And it does not matter if you're black or Asian or Hispanic or white. Because God's objective is to make from the world one people, one family for himself. That's why he chose Abraham, so that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations, so that God could regather all peoples to himself through this family. Salvation was not for the Jews, but from the Jews for all people. And Paul says, to the Jew first, because they had all of these rich blessings, 
that they were to pass on to others so that salvation could come to all. They failed in their role as covenant mediators, but God sent a perfect Jew, that is Jesus Christ, and he fulfilled all of the promises given to Abraham. We're going to tie all those promises back together as we move through Romans. Third, Paul says, I am unashamed of the gospel because it reveals the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous person shall live by faith. That word for uh, revealed is literally uh, apocalypto. We get apocalypse from that. It means to unveil or uncover or to make plain something that was previously hidden. And Paul's point is this. You couldn't know anything about God and his saving power unless he had chosen to unveil it. And he has unveiled it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, he has revealed the righteousness of God in the gospel. Now, if you have a pen and you want to write in your Bible, if you're comfortable doing that, uh, I encourage it. So you remember some of the things every time you open up your Bible, right across the front of the book of Romans, righteous. This is the key word for understanding the book of Romans. That's why we're starting in Romans 1, 16 through 17. We'll go back and cover the rest of the first chapter next week. But this verse unpacks for us the theme of the entire book of Romans, really at the heart of all of Paul's theology and the heart of New Testament theology since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the word righteous. So you have to understand what it means to be righteous to understand the book of Romans, and I would argue all of New Testament theology. Okay, so we're going to do a quick word study. Righteousness means, first and basically, conformity to a standard, okay, or conformity to a norm. If there is a, a standard given and a person meets that standard, that person is righteous. Okay? That's simply put what righteous means. It means to be right, to be in the right. Okay? Whether it's a matter of truth and knowing something or behavior or character, it means to be in the right, conformity to a standard. So played out in a couple different ways in ancient literature. Uh, a person could be right in character or behavior. So this is the right way to behave. And righteousness, I would say, always was viewed in the context of relationships and the obligation of people one to another and their obligation to God. It's a very relational term. Okay? It's not simply a, a, a sterile theological term. We are in right relationships when uh, there's a character or behavior expectation between us and we're behaving accordingly. Or if you're behaving accordingly, then you're righteous and I'm not, I'm unrighteous. Okay? I don't meet the standard. A person could also be right in status. So in a civil trial, when two people would come before a judge in Israel and they would plead their case, at the end of the case, the judge would declare one is acquitted or righteous and the other is condemned or unrighteous. One met the standard of the law in this particular case. The other did not meet the standard of the law in this particular case. Now, the one that's declared righteous might actually end up being, upon further examination, a, a pretty lousy person. Fairly unrighteous in everything else. But as it pertains to the case and the law involved, he is in the right. Okay? That's simply put what the word means in its basic form. Now, how does that apply to God? Well, God's character is righteous. God's personality is righteous. It's it's always right. Psalm 11 verse 7 says this. For the Lord is righteous. He loves 
righteousness. Righteousness was a summary term for all the attributes of God. Everything within God is right. He's always right within himself, and he's always consistent within himself. He's never wrong. His character is right. Second, righteous could refer to God's activities. Based upon his character, God always acts. He never acts in a way that's inconsistent with who he is in his personality, in his character. So, Psalm 143, verses 1 and 11. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. Why? On what basis does he plead? He says, answer me in your faithfulness or your reliability, your consistency, in your righteousness. For the sake of your name, which is another summary term for the personality of God, consistent with your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. God, please, I beg of you, act consistent with your character. These prayers were based upon what Paul knew about God, and so he prayed with confidence. God, act according to your character. I trust you to be consistent. God is also right in his judgment. As Abraham observed, he said rhetorically to God, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly or deal rightly? He says, God, what I know about you is that you are righteous. You always behave consistent with your character. Would you please do so again? God is faithful to his promises. He's consistent. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered, he has not forgotten his loyal love and his faithfulness or his truthfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. If God has promised something, he will always do it because he is always Loyal in his love, that's loving kindness. He is also truthful or reliable, that's faithfulness. He is always righteous or he does what is right, consistent with his character. God is always right. You can always trust God and he will always be consistent. He's not arbitrary in his judgment. He is not partial in his judgment. As we're going to see in chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 3, when God judges... Whether he's revealed himself through nature or through conscience or through law, he will always judge consistently and righteously. We can trust him. So Paul wraps up this major theological section. It goes actually for 11 chapters. And he wraps it up with this statement. Chapter 11, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And what he's referring to are the promises that he made to Abraham and through Abraham to all of us to set everything right and to do it through Jesus Christ. And he says, God never goes back on his word. You can trust him. That is really good news. And that is the central point of Paul's theology. God is righteous. And because God is righteous, God is setting everything right. That's the big idea of Romans. Now, he verifies it and he makes a couple of statements here at the end. I want you to read with me. There's some really significant theology here. Verse 17. He says, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. How does God reveal his righteousness in the gospel? Paul says, well, he reveals it from faith to faith. Now, that is a really challenging phrase to understand and interpret. There are books written on this phrase. 
faith could refer to the act of faith, initially believing. It could refer to faithfulness. It could be God's faith or faithfulness. It could be our faith or faithfulness. A lot of different opinions, so I'll just give you the right one. <laughs> Tell you what I think right now, this morning, on this Sunday morning. I think what he's talking about is from the faithfulness of God to the response of man. And that's what I think is going to be unveiled as we look at the entire book of Romans. It begins with the faithful act of God. God has made a promise. His promises are revealed primarily in his covenants. His covenants guarantee that he has chosen to set everything right rather than scrapping this whole thing called earth and humanity and destroying it and beginning again or doing nothing. God says, I have committed myself to fixing the problem. I'm going to fix it. From the faithfulness of God to the response of man. What's the proper response of man when God reveals his promises? It's trust. God, I believe you. Both that initial act of faith, I understand it now for the first time and I believe you. And then that growing trust and confidence in God and who he is and his promises, which transforms us into people who become faithful also as God is faithful. From faith to faith. And Paul does an amazing thing. He goes to a really important biblical passage to validate his point from the Old Testament. He turns to the book of Habakkuk. Now, curiosity. Anybody read Habakkuk last year? Five? That's about, uh, you know, out of uh, a thousand people. We got got a few more back there. Six, seven, okay. Uh, Probably as you're reading through the Bible in a year, you came across Habakkuk. Anybody linger in Habakkuk last year, you know? (laughs) Okay, one. We got one linger in Habakkuk, all right? So he could probably tell us, what's the point? Why did Paul choose Habakkuk, which seems so obscure to us, but he said, no, when I want to make my most important theological point, maybe in all of my writings, I'm going to turn to Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, and say this, the righteous person will live by faith. Let me tell you what's going on in Habakkuk. In Habakkuk's day, unrighteousness is prevailing. Okay? Even among God's people, interestingly. The majority of God's people are turning away from God. And Habakkuk, as a prophet, he sees this and says, God, it shouldn't be this way. God, you need to intervene and discipline your people and restore righteousness. And God says to Habakkuk, well, I'm going to intervene and discipline unrighteousness. And the way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to choose the Chaldeans. You know that fierce and mighty army, that that evil, wicked army, they come in and they just treat people cruelly and destroy them and torture them? You know that that army? I'm going to have that army discipline my people. And Habakkuk says, time out, God. That, That doesn't seem right. Why would you discipline your people who are somewhat unrighteous with a group that is much more unrighteous? God, what in the world are you doing? And God says, don't, don't worry, Habakkuk. I will also discipline this other group, but you need to trust me. I will do right with them. I will do right with you. I will do right with all people. You need to trust me. So I want you to sit back and wait. And as you wait, I need you to trust me. And Habakkuk writes, recording God's words, his instructions, which, are, which is the, the, the righteous person will live by faith. In the midst of unrighteousness everywhere, waiting for God to act and set all things right, what should the righteous person do? Trust God. Believe him. Believe him and believe his promises that he always does what's right. He judges sin. 
correctly, impartially, justly, rightly, always. He rewards righteousness, always, correctly, justly, righteously. He always does what is right. And so while you're waiting for God to put all things right in a broken world, Habakkuk, trust. And so Habakkuk wrestles and he struggles. He really struggles with this. But at the end, he says, I declare. Even when discipline comes, when the fig tree won't blossom and there's no fruit on the vine, the yield of the olive fails, the field produces no food, the flock is cut off from the fold, there is no cattle in the stalls, there's no rain coming from the sky, and there are no crops growing. Yet I will trust in the Lord. I trust in God. Paul takes that verse because it fits exactly in his context. Unrighteousness is winning, the Romans are in charge. And God has said, well, Paul, I have acted, but I acted in a way that it's a little bit difficult to understand. In fact, when you tell everybody the way that I've acted, they're going to mock you. But as you wait, trust me, I will set all things right. And so Paul says, I trust God. From that initial point on the Damascus road where God revealed himself to him, To his ongoing trust in God, he says, I believe God will set all things right because God is righteous. In our day, the world is broken. But God has intervened. He's just intervened in a way that doesn't play very well in an academic arena on campus where we say, I believe in a crucified Jewish Messiah who was a carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago and never was professionally educated. That one, he died, and then he came out of a stone grave, and my whole life is built around him. Really, are you a fool? And Paul's message to us this morning is, Are you proud of the gospel? Or are you ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel is the power of the one true God for salvation of all people. It is the one way that God has said, this is how I will set all things right. And while you're waiting for me to put all things right, I want you to trust me. And I want you to proclaim the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our confidence in you, our our trust in you, would grow, that it would grow according to your power, that it would be boundless and obvious that we believe in you. We believe your son died for our sins, and we believe that through that act and his resurrection, he is and will one day set all things right. And so he is the very center of our lives. I pray, Father, that increasingly during this semester we would see the power of God through Jesus Christ displayed in our lives. I pray, Father, for this congregation that we would display his power as we love one another more and more, as we worship you, as we turn from sin and we pursue righteousness, as we share our faith with boldness and courage to this community, even when they laugh and mock and scorn, we believe in you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, one announcement for you quickly before you leave. Um, We believe that the Bible is the word of God, living and active. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, That's why we teach the Bible on a Sunday morning. Okay, Uh, They were laying carpet yesterday, and I wrote right here on uh, the step, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word is living and active. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not the word of man that changes lives. It's the word of God. So we proclaim it and we trust and we believe that God will use it to change our lives. 
Uh, I would encourage you, beyond just what you, you hear here on a Sunday morning, you need to be spending time alone with God. And you need to be spending time with other believers in the word. Okay, reading and discussing, challenging one another, applying it to your lives. Uh, we've created a lot of opportunities for you to do that. Why don't you just, uh, this week, look through the opportunities, whether you're a college student or an adult, okay, Sunday mornings or throughout the week, that you find a group of believers that you can be in God's word together. Okay? Now, one application point, actually, I'll give you two. Two application points from this morning's sermon. I want you to read the whole book of Romans this week. It's just 16 chapters. It's, I mean, it'd take you a couple minutes, really, to sit down and read the whole thing through, all right? And then memorize Romans 1, 16 through 17, all right? And there'll be a quiz next week. God bless you. Have a great week.